Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum, have lost about half their value since the first of the year, and Dogecoin has fallen by more than 90% since its peak in 2021. Wealthy and early crypto investors have weathered the downturn, but smaller players have fared less well, revealing what New York Times reporter David Yaffe Bellany calls a yawning divide between them. We'll talk about the crypto collapse, and we want to hear from you. If you're a crypto investor, how has the downturn affected you? Forum is next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. One in five Americans has traded, invested in, or used cryptocurrencies, according to an NBC News poll in March, including half of men aged 18 to 49 and a larger proportion of black Americans than white consumers. But cryptocurrencies have lost $2 trillion in value since their peak late last year. And that's meant hardship for many ordinary investors. Here to explain what's happening is David Yaffe Bellany, a reporter with The New York Times, where he covers cryptocurrencies and financial technology. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you. Can you start by just giving us a quick reminder of what cryptocurrencies are, what their appeal has been? Sure. So it's a technology that emerged in 2008 around the time of a great of the Great Recession as a kind of anti-establishment response to the traditional finance system. And the central idea of it is here's a way that you can transmit money without any type of centralized gatekeeper like a bank. You know, you don't need to rely on the bank to make a bank transfer. You can send money directly from, you know, your own digital wallet to your friend's digital wallet on the other side of the world and you can do that instantly. Um, and then there are all sorts of more complicated financial applications that can be built on top of that, all of which cut out these gatekeepers, middlemen that take fees, that you know take time to process transactions, 
and you know in the kind of sort of uh, you know anti-establishment framing of this contributed yeah. to the financial crisis. But this alternative form of digital currency, it took a while for it to go mainstream. How did it blow up? So it's, you know, it was, yeah, sort of a decade long journey. I mean, I think as a lot of people know, one of the first real applications of the technology was crime. You know, it became a way to sort of facilitate drug transactions because it wasn't um, as easily trackable as as other forms of, 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 of commerce. Um, but, you know, it really started to take off, you know, during, during the pandemic. People had more spare time. They were spending more time on the internet where the, the crypto community is based. You know, some people had, you know, extra money because of their stimulus checks that they could put into uh, experimental investments like crypto. And so more and more Americans got in. There was a huge wave of advertising from the big crypto companies, basically kind of broadcasting the message that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to get rich quick. Um, celebrities got involved, athletes, you know, we saw crypto company brands splashed across sports stadiums. And suddenly this went from this kind of nerdy niche thing to a huge mainstream cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I remember some of those ads. And you've touched on this a little bit, but just say a little bit more about the infrastructure that developed around it as a result. Yeah, so it's not it's not just that there are thousands of cryptocurrencies that you can invest in. There are companies that are sort of built on top of those cryptocurrencies that, you know, act as kind of quasi crypto banks where you deposit your your cryptocurrency and they give you interest back on that deposit. Um, all sorts of, of, of ventures built around this industry. Um, you know, the way that that Bitcoin is produced and the way that Bitcoin transactions are verified is a process called mining, which gets a lot of flack because of its energy consumption. There are publicly traded Bitcoin mining companies where that's all they do. Um, so there's a whole kind of ecosystem built around these currencies. You know, um, venture capitalists have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into it. People have left um, you know, big tech companies like Meta and Google to go work at crypto startups over the last couple of years. It's really become this kind of um, sort of a, a huge, huge business. So what happened this year? Talk about the crash. Sure. So um, there were a series of things that triggered the crash. I mean, the, the first are just the kind of macroeconomic trends that have hurt markets across the board, traditional markets and crypto markets. So the lingering effects of the pandemic and and how that disrupts supply chains, um, the uh, war in Ukraine, which has you know caused gas prices to go up. You know all all of these sort of bigger trends, the Fed uh, raising interest rates that have kind of you know su suppressed the economy a bit, you know that all hurt crypto the same way that it hurt traditional stocks. But there was also instability baked into the crypto economy that didn't exist in the traditional economy. Um, so in May, an experimental cryptocurrency called Luna, one of those thousands of coins that you could buy, lost all its value basically overnight. And that was a result of sort of complex algorithms linking it to another cryptocurrency. It's probably not worth explaining all the details, but suffice it to say, this really valuable crypto asset went from being really valuable to being literally worthless overnight. And that kind of had kind of a domino effect where it, you know, it pushed down the prices of other cryptocurrencies as people kind of rushed out of the market. Um, 
you know, companies in this kind of crypto um, industrial complex that had sort of risen up suffered as a result because some of them had exposure to Luna. And so you saw a series of, of bankruptcies of major crypto firms. And you basically had a domino effect where companies were going under the prices of even the mainstream, the most mainstream coins like Bitcoin were, were plunging. And people who'd gotten in during that period of hype in 2020 and 2021 were seeing their savings vanish. So a couple things. Cryptocurrencies have experienced significant downturns before. I'm curious, you know, relative to like the S&P 500, which has also fallen, are cryptocurrencies doing a lot worse? And how is this downturn different from previous ones? Cryptocurrencies are doing worse. I mean, the headline number that you'll hear a lot, you know, the, the the overall value of all cryptocurrencies at the peak last year was about $3 trillion, which, you know, an important caveat is actually not a huge amount of money in like, you know, world economic terms, but $3 trillion. And now that's down to, I mean, it fluctuates every day, but a little under a trillion dollars. And so basically it's lost two thirds of its value in a few months, which is a crazy, crazy plunge. And it's a worse plunge than we've seen on, on the S&P. Um, as for the historical question, um, there certainly have been downturns before, what the insiders call crypto winters, uh, where, where mm -hmm. prices collapse. Um, the most recent version of that was 2018. You know, there was this wave of what were called initial coin offerings where new cryptocurrencies were launched, and then a lot of those ended up losing all of their value. The difference this time is that way more people are involved, way more regular people have invested. The market is as big as it's ever been. And so the losses are bigger than they've ever been. That doesn't mean that this is the end for crypto. I mean, the argument that you hear from a lot of people is that this is a kind of necessary winnowing moment where some of the less stable projects get eliminated and we're left with the, the survivors, you know, the projects that actually have real, real worth. Um, but that's little consolation to the people who are suffering in the meantime. We're talking with David Yaffe Bellany, a reporter with the New York Times, about the cryptocurrency collapse. And listeners, if you want to join the conversation, feel free with your questions about crypto, its purpose, how it works. If you're an investor and how you've been impacted by the downturn, we'd appreciate hearing your story. And just curious, as we were just hearing David Yaffe Bellany talk about a, a crypto winter Will you continue to invest or are you calling it quits? You can tell us by posting your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You've reported on the role of these sort of crypto banks or lending companies, as you've called them, among many other things, but I was particularly interested in that because it sounded like that brought in or drew a lot of ordinary investors because it was viewed as somewhat safer? Yes. I think when people bought ordinary cryptocurrencies on the market, you know, they were treating them like stocks. You know, you buy a Bitcoin at $30,000 and you hope that its price will go up to $50,000 and you'll make a profit from that trade. But you also know that there's a chance that it could go down to $20,000 and that you'll lose money and that that type of risk is kind of baked into it. It's a high risk, high reward kind of investment, um, very similar to, to, to buying a stock. But there were these companies called, you know, there still are companies that, that, that essentially act as 
as crypto banks. They're not technically banks, they're not regulated as banks, but what they do is very bank-like activity. You deposit your, let's say, 10 Bitcoin, and they give you interest on that deposit. And it's advertised as a sort of risk-free um, you know, maneuver in the same way that you put money into a savings account and get interest. The big difference is that they're promising interest as high as 20%, which wow. you know, hundreds and hundreds of times more than you would get at a bank in the traditional finance system. So you can see why that would be attractive to people. Um, but it also sort of sounds like it's too good to be true. And that's because it was too good to be true. Well, David writes, it is widely known that crypto is pure speculation. To play a greater fool game is incredibly risky. Sometimes those risks don't work out. Don't play if you can't afford to lose. What do you think of David's thoughts on this, David? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that 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 you hear from a, from a lot of people. It's a, it's incredibly risky, and you know, I, I I am certainly no investment expert and can't give people financial advice. But you shouldn't put in more than you can afford to lose. Is a pretty a pretty good um, guiding principle with these things. Um, nobody really knows where the market is going. Um, a lot of people were saying last November when Bitcoin hit its peak of about seventy thousand dollars that it would go up to hundred k in twenty twenty two. Now nobody thinks that's going to happen. Um, um, so in just a kind of short span of time, the thinking around this whole industry has really transformed. You know, people... Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I thought as an alternative digital currency, it was supposed to be somewhat insulated from the kind of economic forces and issues uh, that traditional currencies are. I guess that's also another lesson in this, right, that it's actually quite tied to yeah, other. it's highly it's highly correlated to the stock market. I mean, if you compare price movements of Bitcoin to price movements on the Nasdaq, which is the index that compiles you know tech stocks, um, it moves in very similar ways, suggesting that people are just treating Bitcoin as like part of a broader portfolio of kind of experimental risky investments. And that's not the vision of Bitcoin. The vision of Bitcoin is digital gold, a long-term store of value that's stable. It's a hedge against inflation. The government can't just print more of it and which resists those broader economic trends. That's not what's happening right now. We're talking with David Yaffe Bellany, a reporter with The New York Times, where he covers cryptocurrencies and fintech. And you, our listeners, are with us. We'll have more with you after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Persistent drought is prompting many Californians to tear out their lawns for less water-intensive gardens. And we're curious if you've done this and if you can tell us how. Or if you're considering ripping out your lawn and have questions, you can let us know as well. Send an email to forum at kqed.org or leave a voicemail at 415-553-3300. Again, that's 415-553-3300. Zero, zero. Today, we're talking about the collapse in cryptocurrencies with David Yaffe Bellany, a reporter with The New York Times, and you, our listeners. What are your questions about crypto? If you're a crypto investor, have you been impacted by the downturn? How? And how are you feeling now about its future? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can call us 866-733-6786 or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Let me go to Michelle in Oakland. Hi, Michelle. Hi there. Hi. Um, I was wondering, uh, I have a question for your guest. I was wondering if your guest could explain to me why crypto is often sold or marketed as this stable alternative to traditional currency when we see it fluctuate so wildly and rapidly. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, and and it goes back to the the disconnect between the foundational vision of cryptocurrency as this inflation hedge, this form of digital gold, and what it's actually become, which is a kind of casino for speculation on these things going up or down. Um, and you know, there's there are still people in the crypto community who kind of believe in that idealistic vision um, that we can create this kind of alternate alternate asset that is disconnected from private institutions or government and which is stable and maintains its value. Um, but that's not the reality of crypto today. And you can see how it would be kind of in the interests of marketers to try to kind of invoke that idealistic vision, um, which some people still associate with crypto, even though it's not actually what's what's happening anymore. Um, so I think that's that's the reason you might hear um, you know, sort of marketing materials that kind of kind of talk about crypto that way, even though that's not really how it how it works at this point. Well, we have two listener tweets that are kind of speaking to each other. This listener tweets, what if cryptocurrency systems can be hacked much easier than regular cash flow systems? What if it's much easier to lose everything because it's digitally stored and there's no actual physical record of anything? Blacks in crypto tweets, every system can and has been hacked. How many credit alerts have you received over the last five years due to the target hack, a banking hack, etc.? Crypto gets unfair criticism in this regard because it's new tech and people are used to trusting fallible third parties with their money. What do you think, David? Um, hacking is definitely a problem in crypto, but I think the listener is right in saying that it's an it's an issue in traditional finance as well. But, you know, we've seen a, a sort of string of hacks, especially this year in which popular crypto projects have lost huge amounts of money. Um, and that's, you know, cost cost customers. Um, you know, North the North Korean government has has prioritized 
crypto hacking as like one of their strategies for supporting their economy in the face of, of global sanctions. And so it's definitely a problem in the crypto world. And then of course, there's also the issue with, you know, possible user error, basically. A lot of people like having a middleman storing their money because they know they don't have to worry about, you know, keeping it safe themselves. In in crypto, in, in, in a lot of cases, that middleman is eliminated. And so if you forget the password to your digital wallet, then your crypto is gone. And there are all sorts of stories about people who have, you know, millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin locked up in, in digital wallets that they can no longer access or on hard drives that are at the bottom of a dump or something like that. Um, and so it's it's definitely a risk. You know, when you lose the middleman, you know, you lose the fees that the middleman charges, but you also lose a little bit of uh, support and security sometimes. Hey, let me go to Jack in Sacramento. Hi, Jack. Hi. Uh, can you hear Again, yeah. So, I had a uh, two or three issues. Number one would be I understand the fundamentals and how it started out. Um, as you said, crime buying buying a bag of pot before it was legal. It's sort of like an escrow account. You give money to a third party; they hold it. You get your eBay subscription, or you get your eBay article, or your pot, or you win the dark game or the duel, and then they pay the winner. I get that. However, why should the value fluctuate? They're holding 10 bucks. You win the dark game. The holder of the currency of the money gives it to the winner who's ever still standing. I get that. But why would the, why would the value of it fluctuate? Plus, doesn't it get undermined? If you're holding whatever in bitcoin the guy wins the dark game the way it's wildly fluctuating the value of that fraction of bitcoin could be ten thousand dollars different in four minutes and i have a couple of other issues uh i'll, I'll stand by while you answer yeah well this. let's let's see what david can tell you about what might be helpful jack for you what well, do you think david yeah well to your point about how fluctuating values um make it less useful for transactions is is totally right um you know, that's actually the reason for the rise of a whole new type of cryptocurrency called stablecoins. You know, these are crypto tokens that are pegged to the dollar. So it's always worth $1. That's the idea. And there are various financial mechanisms for maintaining that $1 price for that type of cryptocurrency. Now, there have been all sorts of issues with that. And stablecoins have actually been at the heart of some of what's caused the recent crash. But the whole idea behind that is, you know, to actually conduct transactions, we need something that's not constantly fluctuating. Um, then to your question about why things are going up and down, um, I mean, I think it's helpful to think about it like like the stock market. Um, you know, let's say, you know, if there are people willing to pay more for Bitcoin, then the price goes up. You know, if sudden, someone suddenly buys a lot of it, you know, then, then you know, the price will go up because it's sort of harder to get, you know, what, what remains. I mean, it's a basically, that's, that's the kind of fundamental sort of principle behind it. Um, but it's certainly not what the kind of original crypto um, founders, you know, envisioned for the technology. Who's bearing the brunt of this collapse? David, you described it as revealing a yawning divide. So the people who are bearing the brunt of the crash are the everyday retail investors, the amateurs behind their computer screens who have been buying up cryptocurrency over the last couple of years, who have been depositing crypto into these you know, newfangled crypto banks like Celsius and then seeing it disappear. 
Um, you know, those people have really been kind of wiped out in the crash. Um, whereas, you know, the the crypto kingpins who run big companies and, you know, maybe bought Bitcoin super early, so have, you know, had already locked in some of their gains, they've been much more insulated from the effects of the crash. So it's really fallen on kind of ordinary people. And what have you found out about the extent of the financial impact and even the psychological impact? You hear horrible stories. I mean, I mentioned the the Luna cryptocurrency earlier, which lost all its value basically overnight, went from being worth about $60 a coin to being worth $0. Um, and, you know, I was talking recently with some people in that community who shared with me a spreadsheet basically listing the kind of personal stories of people who lost everything in that crash. And you saw people who'd put their kids' college tuition into Luna. You saw people who had, you know, a nest egg that they wanted to put toward opening a business. You know, I talked to a guy in Australia who wanted to um, to, to, to open a brewery and was sort of banking on, on crypto to help him do that. And, you know, now it's all gone. So really, you know, every, every possible sob story that you could imagine has, has basically happened in this crash. Well, I want to bring into the conversation now Eduardo Jackson, founder of Blacks and Bitcoin. Eduardo is also a crypto investor and founder of the DeFi token CD3D. Eduardo Jackson, welcome to Forum. Hi, Mina. Thanks for having me. And uh, for the record, I was that uh, that uh, tweeter who responding earlier to uh, the lady's question about hacking. Yeah. And I, me at Blacks and Bitcoin. Um, I was just waiting my turn and I saw she responded <laughs> to a post of mine last night and so I engage her. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks. So we, we got a little bit of you on the air before you came on the air. Um, yeah. Well, really quickly, I just wanted to ask you about why you have decided to immerse yourself in the crypto world. What led you to invest? Oh, boy. So if you want to talk a sob story, and while I definitely believe and, and, and know that there are retail investors who have probably been hurt, you know, using crypto or being new to crypto, my story goes back to the traditional financial system. When the recession hit in 2008, I was in my early to mid 30s. I lost my house, lost my car, lost my business, had to move back in with my mom in Seattle, the 35 year old man. And I had a lot of time on my hands to figure out what the hell happened. You know, why was this happening to me? You know, what did I do wrong? And I read a bunch of books, you know, like Griftopia and the and uh, the Big Short and things like that, and kind of got an idea of you know the macroeconomics behind everything that's going on. So that basically, you know, everyone and when everyone else got bailed out 100 cents in the dollar, and my mom lost half her pension, she worked for 20 years working at AT&T. It made sense to me now that it was all a grift, and that these that the players at the highest level were getting bailed out by the government and the banks, and we had nothing you know for it. So when I finally did learn about uh, about Bitcoin. Uh, ironically, I saw an episode of The Good Wife in 2012 uh, where Jason Biggs played Satoshi Nakamoto, and I thought it was a really fun episode, but I didn't think it was real. And so a year later, when I was working with uh, a viral curation site Upworthy, uh, I stumbled across a video from a guy named Max Kaiser, a former Wall Street uh, banker, comedian, uh, he's he's a crazy guy, and his hair was on fire in or in like May of, or March of 2013. He just become a Bitcoin millionaire. Bitcoin had just crossed fifty dollars per token, and he was just so excited. And I and the way he was talking in that nine minute stretch on of all places. RT, Russia Today, <laughs> just really got me energized. And I wrote up a little piece about it, and, you know, titled um, uh, This Man uh, uh, This Man Destroys the Need for Paper Money in, in Nine Minutes or something. And I was fascinated. I just kind of went down the rabbit hole and I got my first few Bitcoin at, in April of 2013 at $88 each. 
Wow. Okay. So then how have you been affected at this point? I imagine you've you've put a lot into it by the downturn, Eduardo. So be well, uh, well, one of the things you did mention is that I, I am running a, a company. My company is actually named Cinema Draft, and we have it's basically like a fancy sports version of the movies. And we have an in game uh, cryptocurrency token called CD3D. And that, and that is you know, like you mentioned, the decentralized finance token where basically it lives on the web, right? You know, there's no like physical tokens or, or currency, whatever, but uh, we use it to help finance you know, our operations and also for people to help play the game and it's kind of think of it kind of like uh buying tokens on fortnite or something right you know uh, virtual you know, money on, on fortnite or, or zynga poker stuff like that and so for me i, I mean because we are almost entirely bootstrapped we have no vc money behind us whatever the downturn didn't really affect me that much at all i've already you know burned through a lot of my personal reserves to keep the the company going uh, i do have like a, a few small investments you know that you know that kind of went down and are kind of coming back up it's like you know uh <clears throat> like your other guest said david said it's it is a very volatile market but the thing i find most fascinating about cryptocurrency is that it is the true it's 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 pretty it's very much a true capitalist market where you know the the earlier caller asked why the values go up and down so widely it's because the market's relatively small you know it's you know less than i think we're at a one or less than two trillion dollars market cap for all cryptocurrencies and so when you have a pool of of money that small and still new i mean it's only about 12 years old 13 years old bitcoin it's going to have you know these fairly large swings until the broader economic system absorbs it, which we're starting to see right now with this current crypto winter with the institutional players uh, point, uh, investing more and losing more than they ever have before. Yeah. So you're still a Bitcoin booster, despite all the volatility and risk that you are pointing out that you have to manage in all of this. Oh, 100%, man. Just, and just real quickly, just to bring people up to speed on the history of Bitcoin a little bit, as far as price goes, it these the downturn that we're in right now, this current crypto winter, one, it's entirely predictable. And two, we've seen worse. <laughs> there is, uh, so my first crypto winter, I guess, was in 2013 or 14. Uh, I saw you know my $88 go up to about $1,200 by Christmas. I was handing out $5, $10 worth of Bitcoin to everyone I knew as Christmas present. And then a year later, you know, it was down, or two years later, it was down to about $250. You know, so the, that was, I think we lost 80, 85% on, on that one. And then oh, wow. of course, swung back up, you know, in 2016, 2017. I think up to about uh, $20,000 at its peak. And so it goes to these normal, these up and down swings. And the reason why I say it's predictable is because the way that Bitcoin works is a whole like mining system. It's a little bit complex, whatever, but basically roughly every four years, the output of Bitcoin gets reduced. Uh, so for every 10 minutes, you know, X amount of Bitcoin gets produced. And every four years, that producing that production gets halved. We call it the halving. And so the miners, that whole ecosystem around it kind of like build in uh you know space to all right so we're going to cash out during this during these low economic uh times and then really kind of hunker down during these these high economic times and so yeah. the whole so you, ecosystem gets affected yeah. yeah but you are really in it for the ride i just have one last question eduardo and sure. we have seen the stats borne out that uh a bigger share of black investors are drawn to bitcoin than say, white investors. You've talked a little sure. bit about your personal experience, but do you want to talk a little bit more? Do you feel like that 
is also something that is contributing to those kinds of numbers that we see. Sure. Uh, personally, I'm an admin, like number two over at a 19,000 person plus Facebook community called Black People in Cryptocurrency. They kind of came around in 2017 with the with, uh, two, two booms ago. And what we found, and we see almost every type of cryptocurrency investment or project kind of trundle through, uh, sometimes hawking their wares, sometimes just you know informing people about the opportunities out there. And one thing about uh, about African-Americans and Black people in general is that, and from what I've seen, the latest statistic I saw was 25% of, of Black people have uh, invested in cryptocurrency as opposed to, say, 15% of, of uh, white Americans. And yeah. what I've found is that because we've normally been shut out of traditional financial systems, both institutionally, legally, and culturally, that's why we're more app to take a, a gamble on this. Uh, I have a site called blacksinbitcoin.com and one of uh, my favorite uh, blog posts, uh, where I, which I actually wrote during the last crypto boom back in 2017, was that we have a once in a generation chance to create generational wealth. There's no barriers to entry for cryptocurrency. You can buy it down to like the eighth decimal point. So as little as you want or as much as you want. And right now they haven't figured out, you know, a real way to kind of shut us out from it. So that's why I started the site back in January 2014 to help educate people about this opportunity. Eduardo Jackson, thanks so much for talking with us. Founder of Blacks and Bitcoin, also founder of Cinema Draft and an inventor of the DeFi token CD3D. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. We're also talking with David Yaffe Bellany, a reporter with The New York Times. I'm curious, David, if you are talking to a lot of people who are still bullish on Bitcoin and excited about it the way Eduardo is, even with its vulnerabilities, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you get a, a couple of lines of thought. I mean, there are people who are enthusiastic about the whole crypto ecosystem, all these different cryptocurrencies who, you know, makes some of the same points that Eduardo is making that, you know, we've seen these downturns before to a degree, they're predictable. And, you know, uh, the numbers will go up eventually, and now might actually be a good time to get in. Um, there's also a kind of group of people um, who call themselves Bitcoin maximalists who are totally bullish about Bitcoin, but think that the rest of crypto, all those other currencies that you see for sale are, are total scams. Um, and, and they think that, that Bitcoin is going to go up and that it's the future of finance and that actually now is the best time to buy because Bitcoin's going on sale. You know, it's down. It's as cheap as it's been since since 2020. So you should buy it now and ignore everything else. And so you get those different kind of flavors of bullishness from various people in the crypto space. David Yaffe Bellany is a reporter with The New York Times where he covers cryptocurrencies and fintech. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions, thoughts, experiences with crypto at 866-733-6786 by posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by emailing us forum at kqed.org. We'll have more of your thoughts after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the cryptocurrency collapse and how it's affected you with David Yaffe Bellany, a reporter with The New York Times. And you, our listeners, are sharing how it's affected you and specifically whether or not you would invest or continue to invest in crypto, are calling it quits, how you've been impacted by this downturn. Peter tweets, I resisted crypto for a long time, seeing it as a solution, looking for a problem. I finally got in a bit with Voyager, which promised high interest. They are now bankrupt, and my small investment is locked up. I don't expect to get it back. Sorry to hear that, Peter. Actually, I think it's a good time now to bring in Murari Shah, a partner in the finance and bankruptcy practice group at the law firm Shepard Mullen in Los Angeles. He's been tracking California's efforts to regulate crypto. Murari, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, because of stories like this, though, I hope that in Peter's case, it was relatively small and didn't have the same kind of impact that David had talked about with some other investors who really put a lot into this at a time when the costs are really high, that these kinds of stories are causing California to begin to look at regulating crypto in the state. Can you talk a little bit about, for example, Newsom's, Governor Newsom's executive order in May on crypto? Sure, happy to. Yeah, uh, Governor Newsom actually picked up on uh, President Biden's uh, executive order, which was released in March, and effectively replicated it for purposes of California in an effort to make California almost a destination uh, for for crypto companies, for for investors, and so forth. And the idea being to create such regulatory clarity and consistency and consumer protection that it would be sort of an ideal way of uh, both getting into crypto as a business as well as an investor um, and and sort of trying to secure uh, people from the types of uh, situations that, you know, we we find Peter in. Um, And so the executive order came out uh, from Governor Newsom in May, uh, so two months after President Biden's executive order. And uh, there were seven goals laid out, but the two most critical ones are the ones I, 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 you know, I alluded to: create a transparent and consistent environment for blockchain technology companies, and then the second one was encourage regulatory clarity by coordinating closely with the federal agencies that were ordered to outline their plans in, in Biden's executive order. So, if you take those two things in combination, what had happened was industry had gotten way out ahead of the regulators. And so this is an effort at the state and federal level to sort of bring the regulators back into the mix and 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 really sort of push them to to create some clarity where there just hasn't been. Yeah. So it's really nascent, right? Are there some specific things that are going on to implement this executive order and are there ways for people to get involved if they've had experiences with crypto that they think would be relevant here? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the, the regulator in California is the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. Um, we call it the Department of Business Oversight. Um, and they've been tasked with, um, under the executive order, to essentially create that regulatory clarity. And they came out with an, uh, effectively an RFI in, um, in June, so a month after the, the governor's order, they came out with a, a notice uh, to, for individuals and businesses to provide comments to a number of things, um, number of topics that they had identified. And that, that period is closing fast. It's, it's, it's August 5th is the deadline. So just uh, this week before um, uh, they'll probably close up uh, the comments, but they, they did go out of their way just this week, yesterday, to, to seek more comments. <laughs> They, uh, um, oh. By the first time I've seen um, that from the regulator, where they 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 made a last call almost and said, "Hey, please send in your comments." And just to give you a sense of the topics they're looking to cover, they want input on how to protect consumers from scams and frauds. So you know whether whether you think Voyager was a um, you know whatever they're certainly investigating that um, and, and those types of activities, but. They're looking for ways consumers can be protected. They want to improve consumer education and outreach. Um, they obviously want to protect investors. Um, and they want to ensure financial stability in the crypto markets. And then finally, that, that overarching goal of creating a federal state sort of harmony um, that's been locking in other uh, financial sectors for, for, for many years and, and decades. So they are trying to create some consistency uh, across the ecosystem. Yeah. And I understand the State Department of Finance and also the Department of Justice. The U.S. Department sure. of Justice has initiated some enforcement actions against crypto companies. Can you just tell us quickly about what you know about some of those? Sure, sure. So the SEC uh, is, is primarily focused on the companies. And, and the, the main claim oh. um, is that, um, for at least with companies, is that they're trading in unregulated securities. So the, the SEC has essentially staked a claim that Crypto is – some people think it's money. Some people think it's something else. Some people think it's neither, but others uh, – but the SEC has come out and said they believe that uh, a lot of these companies are trading in securities, which are not registered, and they need to be. So that's that's been the main focus of the SEC. The Department of Justice has been focused mostly on fraudsters, to be honest with you, so folks that have engaged in rug pulls and other types of um, – uh, basically Ponzi type schemes where people you know are, are lured into investing a lot of money um, and then the money disappears overnight now in, in some cases you know it may not be the intent it may be just the markets acting the way they have and and, and crypto sort of you know falling free falling but um, in a lot of cases uh, they've identified a number of frauds and in, in the as you probably know, the fraud total is in the billions um, in mm. terms of people that have been defrauded, and the just and the Justice Department is rightfully, you know, uh, looking to hold those people accountable. Do you expect to see these enforcement actions leading to people being made whole or close to? Um, you would hope so, and in in, <laughs> in some in some instances, you know, if the markets return and you know and the bankruptcy process works the way it's supposed to. You know, there may be some return. I, I, I doubt that they would get uh, made whole. Just is like a typical bankruptcy. Every creditor sort of stands in line for for whatever's left. Um, and I think one of the things that the 
that the prudential regulators, the banking regulators are particularly concerned about is sort of this idea that like FDIC insures your deposit account and 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 for the most part, these crypto accounts are not insured in that way, but some people are suggesting they are. Some companies are suggesting that they're completely insured, um, and and that's just not the case. And there have been some circulars uh, issued by you know the FDIC and other banking regulators suggesting that 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 banks monitor that and make sure that no company is suggesting that their their money is insured by the government. So kind of a long way of saying um, unlikely. Uh, that these people will made whole, be made whole, but to the extent that that the you know the government, um, both at the federal and state level, has been very proactive in trying to seek remediation where they can. At some point, though, it's uh, trying to get blood from a stone. Well, Marari, thanks for talking with us. Happy to do it. Marari Shah is a partner in the finance and bankruptcy practice group at the law firm Shepherd Mullen in L.A. We're also talking with David Yaffe Bellany, a reporter with the New York Times who covers cryptocurrencies and fintech. And David, I am just curious if you have any thoughts about how things could change in this space if these regulatory efforts do do lead to more oversight and so on. Uh, I guess the important thing to note here is that at the federal level, regulation moves very slowly. I mean, crypto is a relatively new phenomenon, but it's not a completely new one, and we still don't have a really sophisticated, thorough regulatory framework. So that just shows you how slow things have moved historically. So I'm not expecting any dramatic changes overnight. Um, with that said, you know, there's been some movement. Um, the SEC recently indicated that um, a whole set of cryptocurrencies that are offered on some of the biggest crypto exchanges are securities, um, meaning that they're more similar to stocks in a company than uh, the money that you use to, to buy stocks. And that's a very significant legal distinction that could have major ramifications for the industry, because if these coins are securities, then there are all sorts of um, investment protection steps that need to be that that companies that offer them need to take all sorts of disclosures and applications that those companies will have to go through. And so the result is that it could kind of really sort of kneecap a bunch of those companies, but also protect consumers and and hopefully stave off the types of dangerous situations that we've seen in in recent months. But that's a kind of legal process that's still not totally settled. Um, you know, the crypto industry is going to fight back strongly against the designation of certain cryptocurrencies as securities. And so, you know, it's not totally clear how that will unfold. Let me go to caller Judith. Hi, Judith in San Francisco. Yes. Good morning. Um, uh, thank you for this program. It's very informative. I, I'd like um, to know, uh, David, to discuss possibly the Bitcoin mining and the amount of energy that it takes to manufacture bitcoins that um, 60 Minutes had a special on this and the, that they're reactivating coal-fired power plants in order to produce the energy to manufacture bitcoins and the amount of pollution that these uh, that it takes to make them negates any savings uh, that uh, we've uh, acquired or attained by carbon reductions that um uh yeah judith the yeah, environmental but... impact is what's on your mind sure and, and and bethy also writes how can anyone who claims to be environmentally conscious even think about supporting and using crypto and the mining another lou writes what about the tremendous amount of energy needed to mine crypto david 
Yeah, so I would make a, a, a few points about this. I mean, yes, Bitcoin mining requires a lot of energy. I mean, the common estimate that you see is that the um, amount of carbon dioxide produced as a result of, of crypto of Bitcoin mining is you know comparable to the emissions of, of Greece, you know, in in a year, um, which is a lot, and that's that's definitely a lot. I mean, in the grand scheme of climate change and where emissions are coming from, it's 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 a drop in the bucket. You know, Bitcoin is not the thing that's going to send us over the precipice to like climate apocalypse, but it's definitely not good, and it's been a problem for the industry. And you've seen the miners kind of acknowledge that. Um, there are these big publicly traded companies that mine now. You know, it's not people with computers in their in their garage. And so there, there a lot of them are trying to pivot to alternate sources of energy that are that are cleaner. And there, we've seen examples of that. You know, I recently um, toured a a facility that's under construction in in Texas, right next to a wind farm, where they're trying to essentially harness the wind energy to mine Bitcoin. But even that, at least to start out with, is not going to be like 100% powered by by clean energy. So, so there'll be some carbon footprint associated with it. And I think a lot of people reasonably say, you know, this isn't an acceptable trade-off. Like we're not going to, you know, Bitcoin is not important enough or helpful enough to justify the carbon footprint that it that it has. Um, but uh, but you know, on 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 the other side, you know, the Bitcoin proponents argue, you know, we can we can power this 100% with renewables, you know, within a, a reasonable time frame. Um, so that, that that that's basically the situation at this point. We're talking about the cryptocurrency collapse, how it's affected you with David Yaffe Bellany of the New York Times. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Deborah in Concord. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Deborah. Are you there? Okay. Yes. Hi. Sorry. Oh. No, uh, go ahead. Yes, I, I, I called because um, there seems to be this new movement in the nonprofit sector to accept cryptocurrency as donations. And earlier this year, I started getting cold calls from companies that were serving as that intermediary. They had a platform to accept cryptocurrency and uh, supposedly would then cash it out for you. And even the platform we use to accept online donations is now accepting. They have a, a platform specifically for cryptocurrency. Now, I just thought this was maybe it's just me. I'm just too old in the nonprofit <laughs> sector, but it just it just did not sit right, you know, at as a director of a nonprofit that serves immigrants and refugees to be fooling around with this at a time when. We yeah. need support to to support them through COVID. Well, Deborah, thanks for the call. David, I feel like Deborah's reflecting a couple of things that I have read. One is that overall, when people are surveyed, that the more negative view of cryptocurrency um, wins out over a more positive view, um, though I don't know if that gap is closing. But I'm also thinking about what you said at the top of the show, which is that you don't see this as the end for crypto, because in many ways, it really has established itself, right? Yeah, I mean, I think public perceptions of crypto have a lot to do with what's happening in the market. You know, if you did a survey last November, when Bitcoin was worth $70,000, and, 
you know, the major companies were advertising on TV and people were getting in for the first time, there was a lot of positive sentiment associated with crypto. Now, when you've seen prices plunge and people lose their shirts, obviously the perception is is a lot more negative. Um, so I think it's really dependent on, on kind of on, on what's happening. Um, to the point about, you know, accepting donations in crypto, um, it's interesting. I mean, there was a big movement in the crypto community to send cryptocurrency to Ukraine um, to support the war effort against Russia. Um, and, you know, one advantage of that was you could send it instantly. Um, you know, it wasn't slowed down through a kind of bureaucratic process. Um, and that was very attractive to a lot of people. Um, of course, you know, the cryptocurrency, you know, it, it takes time to, to cash it out and, you know, uh, it can lose its value and, you know, it can be inconvenient to have to cash it out. You can't always buy things with the cryptocurrency. So you have to kind of figure out that step. Um, but, you know, there is definitely, there definitely are, you know, people who are deeply philanthropic in the, in the crypto community who are looking at ways that the technology could facilitate um, those sorts of contributions. And let me get Frank in here. Thanks for waiting, Frank. Go ahead. Yeah, very quickly, uh, three quick points. Um, as cryptocurrency as a currency, I heard storehouse of value from David. It seems to have failed significantly. If you want storehouse value as opposed to invest and expect uh, returns on that. Secondly, usefulness. It's really not yet demonstrated. I know it's young, but who's actually using uh, cryptocurrencies for real-world transactions? Third, if you look at fiat currencies, there's about 300 nations in the world, but less than 10 currencies really make a difference. I've heard there's 18,000 cryptocurrencies out there, and you know, less than one-tenth of a percent would be 18. And so I think a lot of the speculation has been on all these other currencies. And to the last point about who's been burnt, um, and I heard about the uh, investment for blacks. I've seen a lot of a number of minority focused, quote unquote, community based type Ponzi schemes and multi level marketing that are targeting minority interest groups to invest and speculate in these. And I think there's a lot of people who've been burnt by this. They've come late to the game. They're looking at the non important, not the Bitcoin, mm. not the Ethereum, but all that tail end. And that it's just like the penny stock market, pump it and dump it. Well, Frank, thanks for your points. Uh, just one of those I want to ask David if you have any thoughts on how to spot scammers or anything that people can do to try to safeguard their investments, I guess, in such a volatile space. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a difficult question. I mean, I think you should probably trust your instincts on a lot of it. If something seems a little bit shady, then it probably is a little bit shady. Um, the other thing is just the, the kind of too good to be true uh, check. You know, um, one of these crypto companies that is now in the bankruptcy process, Celsius, was a kind of crypto bank that was offering these crazy returns on deposits, you know, as much as 20%. And, you know, you have to ask the question, you know, where are those returns coming from? And if that seems just like an implausible amount of money to be able to disperse, then it, then it probably is. Well, David Yaffe Bellini, really appreciate having you on today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. David Yaffe Bellini, a reporter for The New York Times who covers cryptocurrencies and financial technology. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your questions, your experiences. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.